Well, good morning. I want to add my uh, Mother's Day greetings to all of your mothers and to all of you who are mothers. Uh, my name is Randy, and I am an elder here. Um, you know, I was thinking, and by the way, I'm married to Dana, who's right there. Hi, Dana. Hi, honey. <laughs> I was thinking uh, this morning that Dana and I have been attending Meadowbrook since 1991. That's when our parents dropped us off in the nursery. And <laughs> we grew up, fell in love, got married, and here we are still today. Um, I want to talk this morning about uh, uh, sort of a struggle in my own life. And uh, the, the theme of the morning is when you believe in God, but you don't really live like it. When we live more like he doesn't exist. You know, we have a tendency to kind of put people in one or two categories. Uh, they're either Christians or they're not Christians. But I think the truth is for many of us who are Christians, and maybe perhaps some in the room, we live somewhere in between. We're technically Christians, but we really live more like we're not. And uh, I'm indebted this morning to a book by the name of, by the, name of um, the Christian Atheist by Steve Grosh, who wrote about a variety of ways in which people are believers but don't really live like it. And I think the ones that I've pulled out of the book are ones that kind of resonated in particular with me um, and some of the challenges I have in you know, walking with Christ in the, in the details of life. So the first point I want to make is that uh, um, when we believe in God, but we don't really know him, there was a um, Gallup poll that was taken recently where 94% of the Americans said that they believe in God, which seemed like kind of a high percentage to me, actually. Um, and I think it begs the logical follow-up question, is, which is how many of those people actually know God? As it turns out, that's an important question, given this verse, uh, Titus 1.6, which says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Okay, well, that's pretty direct. And that verse underscores the importance of knowing God beyond just believing in him. And I think we all understand that there is a big difference between believing and knowing but sometimes I wonder if we really accept the concept that we can know God and know him in an intimate way. Do we, do we grasp that? Or is he too distant and too complicated and too mysterious? Is he too somehow unknowable? Some of the ways that we typically know him are by reputation, um, as told to us by others, perhaps our parents or our pastors. Or we know about him from reading in the Bible and the stories in the Bible, and that, that's a good way. Or maybe we had a close encounter in him, with him, and we knew him well some number of years ago through some personal experience, but sort of like an old high school friend. We knew him well then, but maybe not so much anymore. In fact, sometimes I think the ways that we do know him are the very reasons that make him seem unknowable. And what I mean by that is that we understand him to be awesome and mighty and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient and omni everything else. But in a way, those are the very characteristics that make him seem sort of unknowable, at least at a personal level. Or we might think that, well, surely we must know him because, after all, we lead a positive lifestyle. We do more good things than bad. But that's not necessarily true either. I mean, while it is true that knowing him well 
will lead to a positive lifestyle. The reverse of that is not necessarily true. Just having an outward appearance of sort of a godly lifestyle doesn't necessarily mean we have an inner relationship with him. In fact, that was the, the Pharisee problem. And while God is interested in our actions, in fact, he calls us to do good works, he's more interested in having a relationship with us. In fact, he's way more interested in having a relationship with us. The truth is, that's why he created us. Acts 17:27 says, God did this, and the this, in this case, refers to he populated the world with people. He made the nations. God did this so that they would seek him and reach out for him and find him, for he is not far from any one of us. He created us to be in relationship with him. And note, by the way, we have to initiate the action. We're the ones that have to seek. We're the ones that have to reach. It doesn't happen automatically, and he doesn't coerce it. We have to do it at our choice and at our initiative. Matthew 7, 7 reinforces this when it says, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. We initiate the action and he responds. But here's the trap that many of us fall into. We do these four things. We believe in God. We do good works. We pray and we read the Bible. And those are four really good things. And they're four things that a lot of people don't do. But for many of us, we're just content to sort of let it go at that. So, as I've tried to build the case here, it's important that we not just believe in God, but that we actually know him by seeking him and by reaching out. Just believing and just being good is not good enough because it's the knowing that results in the relationship, not the believing or the doing. For those who know the story in Luke 10, Mary got this right. Martha did not. You recall the story is, is told in Luke that uh, they were gathered with Jesus along with some others. And Martha was busy, busy, busy doing sort of all the nice hostess things that would help ensure that the guests would enjoy the evening. Mary, meanwhile, was sitting at Jesus' feet quietly, adoring him, worshiping him, sort of soaking in his presence. And when Martha objected and pointed out that Mary wasn't sort of carrying her load, Jesus rebuked her by saying, in essence, Martha, even though the things you are doing are all good things, the important thing is to have a relationship with me. So that doesn't mean he doesn't want us to do good things. What it means is that given the priorities, the highest priority is to have a relationship with him over and above everything else. This is important to us because come Judgment Day, um, sorry, one slide too far. Because some, come Judgment Day, we're going to hear one of two things. We're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, which is Matthew 25, 21. Or, I never knew you, get away from me, Matthew 7, 23. So he's created us for a relationship. He takes it very seriously, as these verses suggest. And here's the secret to that relationship. Jeremiah 29:13 says, You will seek me and find me when, when, you seek me with all your heart. Finding him is conditional on us seeking him earnestly and seriously. Deuteronomy 4.29 likewise says, But even there, if you seek God, your God, you'll be able to find him if you're serious, looking for him with your whole heart 
and soul. And we already know from Acts that he's not far away. Again, it says God did this, which, remember, was populate the earth with humans so that they would seek him and reach out to him and find him. For he is not far away from any of us. Do you believe that? Do you believe he's not far away? The Bible says he is near. The Bible says he is within our grasp. But we have to do something. We have to reach out. We have to seek and find. We don't ride on somebody else's coattails, and it doesn't happen automatically. So to wrap up this point, believing in God simply isn't enough. Even the demons did that. James 2.19 says, Do you think it's enough just to believe there is one God? Good. Great. That may be the only point in the Bible where it gets a little bit sarcastic. Even the demons did that, and they shudder. All right, the second reason that we believe in God, but we don't act like, is we're not sure that he really loves us. In our whole lives, we've heard that God loves us. It's um, in the songs we sing, it's on bumper stickers, our parents tell us, and it's actually even in the Bible. But do we really believe it, or do we live like it? So here's a clue, maybe, to what kind of relationship you have with God. Very often the names we use to refer to somebody are clues into what kind of relationship we have with them. So, for example, mommy or honey or dear suggests a different kind of relationship than madam or waiter or hey you. So think about the names you use to refer to God or just sort of how you think about him, even if you don't attach a name to it. Does it suggest a distance, an aloofness, a coldness, or is there a hint of intimacy? I mean, certainly we want to have a sense of reverence and awe and respect, but somewhere in there, there ought to be some sense of tenderness and, and intimacy. And oddly, our disbelief doesn't really question or challenge whether God loves people. We're pretty convinced that he loves people. We just don't think that he loves us. You know, after all, we uh, hide from other people because we're afraid that they will reject us. And very much in the same way, I think we have a tendency to hide from God, which, of course, does not help building a relationship. It's much like Adam and Eve in the garden in the way that they hid from God. We think that there's no way that God could love someone as undeserving and as evil as we are. Well, and we're not alone with that. Job had this problem, as did the Apostle Paul. In Job 42, 5, 6, he says, My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. And isn't it true that as we get closer to God, we very often see ourselves as being more undeserving, more unlovable, more unfit for having a relationship with him? Even Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was challenged with this. He said, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Even he was insecure about God's love for him. And part of the problem for us is that in human terms, very often our love relationships are conditional. We have to earn the love and trust of others. And if we screw it up, we will lose the love and the trust of others. So we attribute the same conditional love formula to God. We just believe that we have to earn his love, and it's simply not true. And then, if our guilt of our own sinful nature doesn't prevent us from believing in God, our own sense of our um, uh, uh, insecurities and uh, insignificance certainly will. 
With six billion people on the planet and lots and lots of problems, with a cosmos so vast that we can't even wrap our mind around it, who could possibly think that the creator of all that would give a hoot about little old me? And again, we're not alone. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And David, David of Goliath fame, said, who am I and who are my people that we should give anything to you? Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My family is the weakest and I'm the least in my family. But here's the deal. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Because unlike you and me, love is not something God does. It's who he is. And because of who he is, he just simply loves us. God is love. 1 John 4.8 says... God is love. He doesn't pick and choose who he loves. The Bible says each of us were fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. He simply loves all six billion undeserving and sinful one of us. And here's the bonus. His love is bigger than our biggest sin or our accumulation of sins. First Peter 4.8 says love covers a multitude of sins. And Christ died for us to take our sins upon himself. Titus 3, 4, 5 says, When God revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done. No, not that. But because of his mercy, his love. So isn't that comforting? And if there's any doubt, Paul sort of nails it in Romans eight thirty eight, And you all know this verse. I've heard it many times. Nothing in all creation, nothing in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God. So have you ever played two truths and a lie? Okay, here we go. We're going to play. Here's two truths and a lie. You decide. God's love covers our sin. God's love makes us significant. God loves everybody but me. All right, the third way that we believe in God, but don't live like it, is that we don't believe we can change. Just like we believe that God doesn't love us, we don't believe he can or he will change us. In fact, we may even buy into this lie even more. We might actually think that God loves us, but not that he's interested in changing us. After all, he made us this way. And here's sort of how that play out, plays out. First, we don't believe due to our insignificance that God really cares about changing us. Or even more likely, we don't think that we have a problem that needs to be changed. And this point, of course, gets kind of deep and complicated pretty fast and way beyond what I'm uh, able to talk about. Well, let me just mention a couple of things that are actually pretty pedestrian, I think. Our first problem in not acknowledging that we have a problem is that we rationalize it. We say it's no big deal. It runs in the family. It's genetic. It doesn't really hurt anybody. Lots of people do it. Lots of people do it worse than I do it. And as I mentioned a moment ago, God made me this way. The other problem is that we don't want to change. We've kind of grown accustomed to our lifestyle and comfortable, and we're just not interested in changing. We are, however, almost always interested in changing others, you may have noticed. <laughs> and the third is that we've just given up. We've tried to change, and we can't. We don't have the willpower, we don't have the strength, and God obviously didn't help us. So we've given up. And these excuses don't just apply to the things we do. They also apply to how we think. So we may have 
uh, prejudices or grievances or any number of kind of weird ways of thinking that adversely affect our relationships and our behaviors. So in whatever it is that we've resigned to not change, we've imprisoned ourselves in walls of untruths and untruths or lies that the enemy uses to help us stay feeling defeated. But the good news is, if you're not dead, you're not done. So if you're a Christ follower, then the same spirit that raised him from the dead lives within you. And that's a powerful force that we need to claim and live by. Making excuses or conceding defeat to the things that God wants us to change is simply an insult to him. We need to surrender to his power within us and learn to rely on him. How many have ever done some serious weight training or maybe been in the gym when you've watched somebody who's sort of a serious weight trainer? The serious people always have, always have a spotter or a partner. And the spotter does three things. One is that they give you encouragement when you're getting so tired you just want to quit. Two, they're there to grab the weight when you're so tired you're ready to drop it on yourself. And three is they will step in when you're too tired to continue on your own strength and provide some lift so that together, the both of you can finish out the last couple of reps. That's how it is with God when we need to change a long-term difficult habit. He encourages us and he helps lift the weight when we're too tired to continue. We initiate the effort, but he's there on his strength to contribute to finishing the job. When we are weak, he is strong. And hard habits to break are like weights that are too heavy to lift. We can do some of the work, but without his help, we can't do it alone. And he won't generally do all the work for us without some effort on our part. Now, at this point, I know I'm going to offend some people, so just be ready for that. I'm going to confess that I'm not a big fan of the poem Footprints in the Sand. You know the one I'm talking about? This is where... Uh, There's a picture of these lonely footprints kind of walking down this lonely shore. And the poem is about the lament of somebody who's having this terrible, difficult burden in their life, terrible time in their life. And they're saying, God, where were you? I mean, there I was by myself walking on the sandy beach, carrying this heavy load by myself. Where were you? To which God or Jesus replies, dude. Those are my footprints in the sand, not yours. I was carrying you. Okay, so I know that's a sweet sentiment. You probably have a, a magnet on your refrigerator with that, or you might even be decoupaged on your wall. But, but I think that applies in maybe 5 maybe 10% of the time in our lives. And then a much more biblically accurate poem is butt prints in the sand. <laughs> You, you, you know the one, right? No? Okay, all right, let me read this to you. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not upon the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared. And I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow. 
the walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired and I got fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. <laughs> because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb. When one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. So, yes, God made us as we are with our strengths and our weaknesses and our weaknesses or our burdens or our difficult circumstances. They're not mistakes. They're not design flaws. He gave them to us for a reason. He gave them to us to keep us humble. He gave them to us so that we would have a reason to turn to him and find him and seek him and to begin to develop the relationship that he longs to have with us. And he gave them to us so that when we are victorious, we can give him the glory. They're not mistakes. These are some of our most valued opportunities to come together with him and be one with him. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you will be given. Those are his promises to those who earnestly seek him. All right, the fourth and the last way that we believe in God but don't live like it is that we pursue happiness outside of God. Now, while it's true that God wants to bless you and has a great plan for your life, if you think he's mostly about making you happy, then we've wandered into some very dangerous territory because that subtle misunderstanding radically reverses his role with ours. If we think that he's mostly about making us happy rather than we exist to serve him, then in effect, we believe that he exists to serve us. And that's why so many people become disillusioned with the faith. They try religion and it just doesn't work. Or they go to church, but their lives didn't really get any better. So either God doesn't care, he doesn't exist, or he's just not willing to do anything on my behalf. And either way, I'm not interested. The problem, of course, is that we get fed so many messages culturally that feed our natural inclination anyway to want to be happy. But happiness isn't the point, and it really shouldn't be the goal. Sometimes what we think will make us happy is the opposite of what God wants for us. In fact, he doesn't want us happy when it causes us to do something foolish or unwise. Proverbs 14:12 says, there's a way that feels right to a man, but in the end will lead to death. In God's economy, the end, happiness, never justifies the means. And I think this is perhaps the most vivid when we think about little kids. I just spent a couple of days with my three-year-old grandson a couple of weeks ago, and I was like invoking this rule, you know, multiple times a day. He kept wanting to do things that he thought would make him happy that I knew were foolish. Some of them were just stupid. And I would stop him, much to his chagrin, I might point out. But I knew that it was better for him to not engage in those activities. God also frowns on our happiness when it's based exclusively on things of this world. When we become too materialistic, our thirst for things material is never satisfied. And in this trap, we think that the only thing that will bring us happiness is that one thing or those set of things that we don't have. So here's the world's happiness formula. 
better possessions plus peaceful circumstances plus thrilling experiences plus the right relationships and the perfect appearance equals happiness. The problem, of course, is that it's nearly impossible to maximize all those or for all those to be true in any given time or for any length of time in any case. And thus we're doomed to unhappiness if that's our formula. We very often spend most of our lives sort of manipulating those things to try to maximize our happiness level. And it's not that there's anything wrong with any one of those things unless we're pursuing them outside of God. If he's nowhere in the picture on those various things, then we're pursuing happiness in the wrong ways. So why doesn't that formula really work? Well, aside from the fact that it's nearly impossible to maximize those factors, they address worldly and earthly values. And here's the truth. We are only sojourners on this earth. Our real home is with Christ in heaven forever. Max Lucado tells a story about a fish in his book, When God Whispers Your Name. He asks the question, do you think a fish would be happy lying on a sandy beach? Well, the obvious answer is no. Right? <laughs> the obvious answer is no. A fish is designed to be in the water, not just near the water. And you could give the fish more money. You could give them a good job. You could give them extra vacation. You could even give them a new boat. Maybe a new boat. The fish still would not be happy because the sand is not his home. Philippians 3.20 says, We are strangers, aliens, foreigners on earth, made to dwell forever with our Lord in heaven. So we will never find true happiness by seeking out the temporary things in this world. So for me, and maybe some for you, just to conclude, I think it all comes back to knowing God, our first point this morning, to seeking him, reaching out for him. He promises that when we do earnestly and seriously, we will find him and begin to have that relationship. And I think once we do, that is bound to change all the other things that we struggle with when we believe in God but we sort of live like he doesn't exist. I just don't think we could know him well and not get better at all those other things. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking with us this morning. And like our weightlifting partner, we ask that you would help us seek you more earnestly, more diligently, more persistently. And we rest in the confidence of your promises that when we do, we will find you and we will have that relationship that you so desire and we so need. Amen.